Hey guys, I'm excited today. I have uh, my friend, Dr. Russ Kennedy here. Um, it's called the Anxiety MD. Um, I met him at a energy training retreat um, with um, Paul Walker, who uh, I had on the podcast earlier, and it was really great. And uh, we had some good conversations. And um, yeah, I'm just excited to have him on here today to talk about anxiety. Um, you want to introduce yourself a little bit more? Sure. Yeah, my name is Russ Kennedy. I'm a medical doctor, a neuroscientist. I grew up with a father who had schizophrenia, so I had a lot of chaos in my childhood, created a lot of anxiety in me, went through 20, 30 years of different therapies, none of them worked, so I basically had to find something that worked for me. So that's the short version. Yeah. Uh, What kind of doctor were you? I just did general medical stuff. So when I finished, I worked emergency i delivered babies you know worked in an urgent care clinic that kind of thing Mm -hmm. okay and so what about that um did you find that what was lacking in the in the medical field um well i think it's just yeah i think basically it's highly pharmaceutically based so you know there's a medication there for everything that's how we're trained is to use a medication most of the time now, it helps with symptoms, but if your underlying cause of your arthritis or your Crohn's disease or whatever is is trauma that's unresolved, that's still stuck inside of you, it doesn't really do much for that. So mm-hmm. I think medical doctors are amazing in many, many respects, and I think medications are very helpful and also in many respects, but I think that um, they're overused, and I think it kind of dangles patients over the gates of hell in a way because it numbs their symptoms so that they don't actually have to deal with the mm. underlying problem. Right. So they're dealing with symptoms a lot of times rather than root causes. So it's not a long-term uh, yeah. solution. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you said you're a neuroscientist as well? Yeah. My first degree, my pre-med degree was in neuroscience. Awesome. So how do you, how do you feel about neuroscience and how that uh, interacts with, with those beliefs? Well, I think it's pretty amazing stuff. You know, it really, people really like to know the pathways Mm -hmm. in the brain that create, you know, the amygdala, the hippocampus, um, basal ganglia, prefrontal cortex. People love knowing that this is what's happening inside of their mind. Doesn't really help us heal, though. That's the thing about science is it, you know, it gives us coping strategies, but really healing is much more of a kind of a spiritual nature. And, I believe that anxiety is typically a mind-body disconnect, which is why mm. exercise and yoga and that kind of stuff help, along with an adult self, child self disconnect. So I, I believe that there's a child inside of us that is asking for our attention through this alarm in our body, and the adult doesn't want to go back and visit the mm. child because the child holds their pain, mm. and the child doesn't trust the adult because we've been there with them 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years sometimes and haven't really gone back to say, hey, are you okay? Is there something Mm. I can do for you? Can I Mm -hmm. help you? And then we start looking for things outside of us to heal us. Uh, People, you know, putting a lot of pressure on our partners or our kids even Mm -hmm. to look after our emotional needs. And that's valid to some extent. But if you don't give it to yourself, you're always going to be lacking. Nothing that anyone gives you from the outside is going to be enough. You need a combination of both. So you need a combination mm-hmm. of you know connection with other people and connection to yourself, and you need a combination of you know combining your mind and your body together, and within mm-hmm. your own self, combining that adult self with the child that's still in there. Yeah, that that's all great. Uh, I think psychology call that like parts work, um, and I'm a big fan of that. Um, and yeah, like you said, you know it's. It's great to have other people and then model 
what love and validation and all that stuff looks like. But if our if our own mind and our own um, body isn't feeling that, isn't you know, we can only we have to believe it ourselves, and that's a that's a process and and something that we have to work on ourselves. And so if we're always looking for other people to to fill that, you know, that's only part of part of the process. It's not going to make that long lasting root root change. But it does feel good to get right. validation right. from other people. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why a lot of people who are actors and you know people who seek out the limelight mm-hmm. often they didn't get enough attention as as children mm-hmm. and they're seeking it out that way. And I think the reason why they get so uh, disenfranchised with being famous is that it's not what they thought it was going to be. Mm. They thought it was they they thought it was going to provide them with all this love and connection, maybe not consciously but unconsciously. And then mm. when they find out, no, you're just a commodity, you're just an article to them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very hard on the ego. So yeah. it's, I see that's why a lot of people who are you know highly successful in the public eye are also highly. <laughs> highly distressed emotionally mm-hmm. they don't show it you mm-hmm. know it looks like they've got the best life in the world but internally it's not true yeah well also i mean i think it creates this disconnect with themselves because they're like oh i have to act this certain way that people like that um that that's what's that's what that's when they'll validate me and give me love and so it's like but then they're like oh who who actually am i i'm not this character i'm playing or this this, this role i'm that I'm, that I'm being for the public for this love, like whether that's conscious or unconscious. And then they're like, Oh, I can't actually be who I, who I really am. And so it's, it's more disconnecting with themselves and, and that child part of themselves. And so in the end they find that it's empty. Yeah. I mean, that's Jim Carrey. I mean, basically that's what he, he found that no matter how famous I got, it wasn't going to fill this sort of mm-hmm. lack that was inside of me. And because he was so good at what he did, that people would just love him so much. Robin Williams, to some extent, mm. same same kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know. So at least Jim found this sort of internal strength inside of him and decided, hey, I don't need this persona anymore. I can actually be who I am. And you know, he's he's in a. I think he's in a much better place than he was before, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I've li- I've watched some clips and I, I thought he's had some good stuff. I think he's, uh, I think in your early stages of, of changing, you get kind of self-righteous a little bit. And I kind of see some of that, but I think that, you know, as you heal that, that calms down in time and you can yeah. just, uh, appreciate who you are without needing to be so self-righteous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you find something that works really well for you, sometimes people make the mistake of extrapolating that that's going to work really well for everyone. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, I think Jim's insights are for everyone, but mm-hmm. you know in, initially, when you first start seeing the light and you start seeing progress, it's like, oh my God, this is the best thing in the world. Mm-hmm. So you want to yep. share it with people, so mm-hmm. you know, I can understand where he comes from for sure, right, yeah, I've been there myself, <laughs> yeah. so I get it um so how did you transition to becoming the anxiety m d um anxiety is something you dealt with your life in your life as yeah. well? Yeah. So from even from med school in my 20s, you know, it was um, there was a lot of anxiety about med school. You know, do I have the mm-hmm. do I have the brains to make it through? Do I have the stamina to make it through? And how much of that did I put into my identity? Like being a doctor was a huge part of my identity and not being a doctor, like getting like withdrawing from med school or whatever would have been devastating for me. So, you know, it created this huge um rift inside of me is like oh well this this is what you have to do and the other part of me was like 
do I really want to do this? You know, and I really love, mm-hmm. of course, helping people and that kind of thing. I've always been kind of uh, empathic and helpful to people. And, and that kind of filled that role quite neatly. But as we said earlier, it wound up being just handing out prescriptions to people and mm-hmm. not really getting at the root cause of anything. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not against medical doctors. I think there's a huge role for providing symptom relief for people, just provided that we know that that's what we're doing. And if somebody presents to your office as a doctor with these complex symptoms, like think trauma, think childhood mm-hmm. trauma and refer them out to someone who does maybe parts work, IFS or, or somatic experiencing or something like that, that would actually help them in the long term. Because we as doctors get, you know, seven to 10 minutes with every patient. And if somebody's got a severe, you know, background trauma, we're not going to be able to touch that because mm-hmm. A, we don't have time and B, we're not trained in it at all. Right, right. Yeah. And IFS is internal family systems, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. I, I remember in grad school as well, feeling a lot of uh, imposter syndrome and a lot of anxiety. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I, I, you grow up and, you know, might be smarter than the average Joe and, feel pretty good. And then you get to grad school and you realize everybody's really smart too. And, um, same with med school, same, you know, we're we're all like straight a university students. So it's, it is one of those things that it can be kind of intimidating. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, did you, did you deal with anxiety from a younger age as well? Like from childhood? I think so. When I look back, you know, when I look back and see that, uh, you know, I was kind of a nervous kid. I was always really sensitive. You know, there's Mm. this great, there's this great saying that I love. It's like the drama and trauma of a family will land squarely in the heart of its most sensitive child. So, you know, if you're a sense, if you're the most sensitive child in your family, (laughs) there's a good chance that you absorbed a lot of that familial trauma. I feel that. I talked yesterday with a woman who is um, Jewish and her parents, uh, parents, parents, Mm -hmm. you know, were in the Holocaust and that kind of thing. And just Mm. the trauma that gets handed down through the Jewish faith, but, you know, through African American, like there's, there's all this Mm -hmm. trauma that we don't acknowledge that's right. handed down that sort Generational of weighs trauma, people trauma. down. Yeah. And it mm-hmm. weighs people down. So it's, it's, you know, this trauma is multifactorial. I've even had people with, you know, severe anxiety who said, you know, my parents were amazing. You know, my parents were great. Mm-hmm. But then I say, well, go and ask your mother if you had a separation from your, your, from her or her dad or your dad before the age of five, because mm-hmm. 80% of your brain development occurs before five years old. Mm-hmm. And so many people come back and go, oh, I didn't know this, but for a month, you know, I had, I had croup and I was in the, you know, the hospital and then their parents weren't allowed to visit me. Cause there was one, there was one time where, um, the hospitals didn't like parents visiting their children because when the children, when the parents left, the children would just freak out and become mm. unruly. So what they, what the hospitals did was they said, okay, no more parents, no oh, more parents visiting. So of course the kids would all go into, you know, dorsal vagal shutdown. They would all go into like complete withdrawal, complete mm-hmm. collapse, which is very anxiety provoking. So I see mm-hmm. quite a few people that had good parents, but because they had that early separation from typically from mom, they really had a hard time with abandonment and anxiety. Mm. Yeah. I, my mom said that uh, she took me to um, uh, pre- preschool or uh, sorry, it was daycare one day and it was, I just hated it. It was terrible. And, and she took me out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and you were yeah. probably born a sensitive kid. Yeah. You know? So uh, I definitely it. was very sensitive. Do, do you think it has anything to do with um, the, the, 
whether you're like the oldest or youngest or middle child or things like that? I kind of think, you know, when I see people in my work, the oldest child of that sex tends to pick up the parents' issues. So the oldest boy will pick up the dads, the oldest girl will pick up the moms. Mm -hmm. That's a general rule. Like Mm -hmm. it's not always true. But I see that quite frequently as the oldest Mm -hmm. child picks up the trauma and drama of their same-sex parent. Mm. Yeah, I was the oldest. Yeah. Uh, What about you? Well, my dad was was schizophrenic Mm. and – you know, he had a lot of trauma. My, like my dad was born in 1934 and he weighed under two pounds and he survived. But my, my grandmother said we took him home in a shoebox and the doctor said, you know, we don't expect him to survive, but he did, you know, and that's mm-hmm. the reason I'm here. So mm-hmm. it's, it's really interesting to see, you know, but he had a lot like, you know, prenatal trauma and, and all this stuff that sort of came out. And eventually, you know, that, that energy kind of weighed him down psychologically because mm-hmm. we don't have a history in our family of, of uh, schizophrenia. So mm-hmm. I think it was just the trauma of, you know, born, being born in 1934 where there's no neonatal ICUs. There's none mm-hmm. of that stuff, you know, and just just sort of making it through. So I mm-hmm. think he started off life physically kind of debilitated. He grew into a fair, fairly good athlete and that kind of thing. But, you know, he... Um, he had a, a tough start for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard that even just just like being born in a hospital and and everything going on like that's traumatic for babies. So it's like we all have a certain amount of trauma. <laughs> we all do, and I, I think that's true, Kenal. But I think too, you can't have childhood without trauma. It just doesn't right. happen. But uh-huh. if you have attuned, attached caregivers that can kind of mediate that trauma and resolve it at the time it happens your nervous system actually becomes stronger than someone Mm. who didn't have a lot of trauma and Mm. never really got tested. So if you have trauma as a child and you have really attuned, attached, loving parents, you can actually develop a stronger nervous system than those people that that had sort of, you know, cushy childhoods with Mm -hmm. not not a lot of trauma. So, you know, I think we need to be tested and Mm -hmm. it's the repair part that really allows us to learn. Yeah, you could. I mean, you could see it just like lifting weights. You know, like it, yeah. it's good to tear your muscles and build up, but you don't. You know, you don't kill yourself. You build up, and also you got to recover and you know for yeah. yourself healthy and stuff like that. So uh, and, that makes and sense. Healing to me. is the same. Healing is the same. So it takes a while. Like people come and say, I see these things on you know Instagram or whatever. Heal your anxiety in seven days. Heal your anxiety <laughs> in a month. It's like, well, it probably took ten, twenty, thirty years to develop anxiety. You're not gonna. You're not going to erase those programs in seven days, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we can make you feel better by thinking better, sure, but it's not going to resolve the underlying problem. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just like, you know, it'd be like, I'm going to teach you how to be a guitar virtuoso in two days. Just we need the brain needs time to wire and unwire, rewire, over, mm-hmm. you know, overwrite a lot of these old um, programs that we assume is our, were for our survival. Mm-hmm. You know, hypervigilance, OCD, mm-hmm. all these things are survival-based mechanisms. Mm-hmm. And it takes a while before we feel safe enough in our environment to be able to kind of start rewiring those those old programs. Mm-hmm. So you said develop, it takes like 20, 30 years to develop anxiety. Can you explain more what that means? Well, I think, you know, people have had, by the time they see me, typically, you know, most of my, my clients are female, like 60, 70% female. Most of them mm-hmm. are probably in their, somewhere between 35 and 55. So, you know, they've had trauma that, you know, they endured when they were like 
8, 10, 12, 15 years old. So it's been in there for 20 or 30 years. So we're not going to you know, erase those programs or rewire those programs in a week. So it's learning how to connect you know, your adult self with your wounded child self and your mind and your body. And then you develop this sense of safety. And in this sense of safety, then you can heal and those old programs kind of rewire themselves. But if you don't have any safety, you know, you can't really heal any sort of emotional mm-hmm. illness, depression, anxiety, OCD, eating disorders, personality disorders. You can't, unless you have safety, you can't heal any of those things. Right, right. Um, yeah, you need that, that you need a, the, a good feeling to try to bring in more to know you, you, your body has to know what that is before it can accept that more and bring that in. Is would that, yeah. would that be correct? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you said you have mostly female patients. Uh, is, is there, what is the correlate, uh, difference between male, female as far as like anxiety? Well, I think it presents in slightly different ways because men tend to push the emotion away. Mm-hmm. So men are more much likely to use alcohol, to use illicit drugs. Females are much more likely to use prescription medications. So it's it's a different, it's kind of a different animal. The trauma is is often the same, mm-hmm. but it's the way our society and and we're wired as different as male and female. You know, male, it's like, well, everything's up to me. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't rely on anyone else to help me. Mm-hmm. Women are much more collaborative in that in that respect. So healing is often a, a different structure mm-hmm. for women than men. So it's really, but it really comes down to how well can you be vulnerable? How well can you connect with that younger vulnerable part of you that's still inside you? Men had, typically have a harder time because they judge themselves pretty harshly. So do women, though, depending mm-hmm. on depending on what they were modeled by their parents. If you had parents that were very demanding or critical, you'll develop that demanding, critical inner voice, too. And that makes it harder to heal because you can't feel safety. Hmm. Right. So you feel like that you have a lot more women coming to you because women are more wired to or uh, it's accepted in society to be collaborative and, and that it's OK uh, yeah, to be. I think that's you know. true. I think okay. that's true. And with men, there's this, there's a bigger stigma uh, for men than there is for women. Mm, and yeah. women like to talk more than men do. You know? <laughs> right. That's just that's just part of the game. It's like women mm. like to talk more than men do. They're more communicative. Communicative. They they know more words. They know more emotion words. Mm-hmm. So it's it's I think on some level easier for women to mm. access that. Mm-hmm. And so like yeah. emotional intelligence is more um taught to women or, or i think part they just come natural. by it naturally i think naturally. they just come mm-hmm. by communication that's part of their makeup as females mm-hmm. now this is a generalization of course right. but but as females part of their makeup is to communicate is to is to be more language oriented than men so it's been shown that women know more emotion words than mm-hmm. men do um, and it, re- it resonates with them more than men. So we, our ha- men, are really are really good, if that's the word, at, at stuffing things down. <laughs> right. You know, it's an it's an ironic uh, um, sort of paradox that we're good at stuffing things down, and so good, in fact, that you know our suicide rate is four times that of women. Mm. So. You know, and, and, you know, one of the things about that is the tears, having a, the ability to have tears or cry mm-hmm. is, is basically a reparative thing in the brain. Your brain mm-hmm. repairs 
when you can cry. But if you can't cry as a male, if that's been beaten out of you, essentially, mm-hmm. emotionally or physically or whatever, or shamed, um, you're losing a real important part of healing, just like mm-hmm. sleep is. You know, mm-hmm. you, you prevent people from sleeping, they're going to get... <laughs> going to get mentally uh dysregulated if you Mm -hmm. if you don't allow people to have tears they're also going to get mentally dysregulated because Mm -hmm. that's one of the brain's most natural ways of combating stress and anxiety Mm -hmm. is tears because Mm -hmm. you don't change the you know external environment your wife is still leaving you or your dog has still died but there's just something about tears that change your perception of the world to Mm -hmm. a more softer place and if you don't if you can't have that as a male your ba- it's life's going to be pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I always consider myself more of an emotional male and, um, like read, I love reading and, and crying books or movies or whatever. And I've always found it very, very healing. I, I guess the only well, thing, one I more think, thing before we leave that, yeah, like, yeah. You know, you don't have to cry in front of your girlfriend, you know, you don't have to cry in front of anybody. Right. It's just like, I, I have a lot of guys that I say, okay, go car screaming. Like if you're really <laughs> frustrated, go in the uh-huh. car Right. Go to a, like a like a park or whatever, roll up the windows and just start screaming. Mm. And it's amazing how often when you start releasing that energy, that tears will come up because mm. they've been suppressed for so long. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can have tears, but no one has to know. Right. Like, if, you know, initially, mm-hmm. uh, no one has to know. And, and that, I think that's empowering for a lot of men is just knowing that you can have some tears, but just do it on your own. Yeah. And I'm not shaming men, like not saying you can't do it, but there's, there's a real barrier for men for tears. And if you can start making it a little more accessible, you know, even if you're in the middle of the forest when no one can see you or hear you or whatever, you know, it's a, it's a, an amazing release that we have as human beings. And if you don't allow yourself to have that as a male, you, things are going to build up. Things mm-hmm. are going to get worse and you're going to be more likely to lean on alcohol, porn, mm-hmm. your girlfriend. We put a tremendous amount of stress on our wives and girlfriends because, you know, we, we can't trust our male friends with these emotions because we mm. won't share them that way. So as a result, all of that negativity gets challenged, that gets channeled into our, our female relationships typically, which is a tremendous burden for them because they're mm. all, they're already dealing with their own shit. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I won't get too off track, but I was just, I guess, I know there was been points where I was so stuck on melancholy that I, I feel like there can be an overuse of tears. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's when it's, it's happening too much, you know, and, and you're not able to get out of that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's stuck in level, that emotion. Yeah. yeah. But, but, you know, there's, there's something about having tears about how you were treated. Like if you were emotionally, physically, or sexually abused, mm-hmm. you know, tears are really important to process mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I think that uh, we, if you're, if you're caught in like depression, that's a, that's kind of a different story. But if you're frustrated and kicking the dog and slamming your car door and getting freaked out about everything and irritable all the time, chances are there's an emotional root to that. And one of the ways that we can metabolize that is through tears. There's other ways too. I'm not saying that you just have to become a tearful mess. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying like, don't block that avenue of therapy for yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. Um, Maybe the first thing I should have asked, (laughs) can you define anxiety? Well, the way I define anxiety is anxious thoughts and anxious thoughts themselves aren't painful. What's painful is this alarm energy that's in our body. And mm-hmm. that alarm energy 
get stuck there when we experience trauma as a child, emotional, physical, sexual abuse, loss, uh, abandonment, rejection, bullying, anything that made us mature too early or anything that shames us. So any of those things create this energy of alarm in our body. And there's this process uh, in polyvagal theory called interoception. Mm-hmm. And interoception is how the brain detects the body. The brain is always reading the body. So if you have this old alarm from you know being beaten by your dad or the fact that your mother was a narcissist and you were never happy or she was never happy, that's still in you. And basically what anxiety is, is the man- the psychological manifestation of this old alarm energy that's stored in your body. So it's not anxiety is not really a mind problem. It's reflected by the mind. Mm-hmm. And because we worship the mind in our society, we think the mind is the cause of anxiety. Whereas the thoughts and worries, they're just a byproduct of this old energy that's stored in your body and your mind too. You can't separate the the, the mind and the body, mm-hmm. but it's this old alarm energy from your old traumas that was never resolved that keeps reverberating through your thoughts. And then when you come up with these horrible, worrisome thoughts, that alarm that's in your your body gets more energized, and then then it creates more thoughts, creates more worries, which creates more alarm, which creates more worries, and you get into this alarm anxiety cycle. Mm-hmm. So what I say to people is, anxiety is just basically your your anxious thoughts. And one of the ways that I sort of highlight that is I I say, say I have two 15-year-old patients in my office, a male and a female. And I go in and I say to the female, um, Jennifer, I think you might be pregnant. Now her body's going to freak out. It's just going to lose her mind, (laughs) right? I mean, if she doesn't want to be pregnant. right? But if, and I go in and say, hey, Jake, you might be pregnant. He's just going to laugh. It's not going to affect his body at all, right? So it's the belief in what we're telling ourselves that creates the alarm in our body. And it's the alarm in our body that we perceive as painful. So it's not really the thoughts of our mind. It's kind of an illusion. The thoughts of our mind, we can point back to and go, I'm, uh, you know, I'm having this pain because I'm worried about this medical test or this biopsy or whatever, but it's not, it's actually this old alarm that's in your body. That's what you're feeling. That's what's painful. The thoughts are just a byproduct of that. So mm-hmm. most therapies address the thoughts and they think, okay, well, we'll change, we'll change the thoughts and that'll change the anxiety. And in the short term, that works. CBT, that sort of stuff works, but it, but it doesn't last. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my wife is a somatic trauma therapist, Cynthia, and she said something the other day that really s- stuck with me. It's like somatic therapy, like, like somatic experiencing and internal family systems to some extent. They help, but it takes a while. It mm-hmm. takes a while to create that foundation in the body. Mm. Whereas CBT and psychotherapy appear to help right away, but mm-hmm. it doesn't stick. The somatic mm-hmm. therapy sticks, but it takes longer to achieve it. Mm-hmm. And then once I and I think when we get the somatic therapy in place, when we start grounding in our body, then the cognitive therapy has a place to root and and actually stick and actually help mm-hmm. us in the long term. But just trying to change your thoughts to heal your anxiety just doesn't work. Right, because a lot of times it's well. I, I guess I always thought it like psychotherapy is better in CBT because it's actually addressing root trauma. Is but, it though? Is it? 
Like, I, that's what I'm saying. Like, you can say, oh, yeah, my dad used to beat me when I was, I, I didn't, but not for me, but my dad used to beat me from the time I was seven till I was 12 because I have a patient like that. And it says, but it made me tough. It made me strong. Like, it made me not be able to say no. It's like mm-hmm. kids are, are able to rationalize just about everything. Right. So, you know, psychotherapy, if you're not actually getting into the drilling down into the feeling in the body and sitting with that feeling in the body and mm-hmm. acclimatize you, and that's, you know, that's the basis of the body keeps the score. Bessel van der Kolk's mm-hmm. like seminal work is that we're not teaching people how to get rid of their anxiety. What we're teaching them how to do is acclimatize to that alarm feeling so that they can actually sit with it and stay with it rather than mm-hmm. running up into their thoughts all the time. Mm-hmm. Because if the problem is down here in your chest and all you do is try and fix it up here in your brain, right? this problem in your chest never gets dealt with. Every mm-hmm. time you approach it, you just mm-hmm. go into your head. Mm-hmm. So it's... You know, it's like you never actually deal with the underlying problem. So that's my issue with psychotherapy right. is if, if as long as you're as long as you're getting into the body with that and not just how do you feel, you know, how do you feel in your body when you mm-hmm. think, you know, your mother never loved you? It's like, mm-hmm. where is it? You know, where mm-hmm. is it in your chest? Is it in your mm-hmm. belly? Is it in your throat? Does it have a color? Does it have a shape? Is it a pressure? Is it a pain? How is it su- superficial? Is it deep? Go into the real nuts and bolts of it. Because if we look at neuroscience, there's a a part of our brain called the insula. And the insula kind of mediates the mind and the body, kind of joins the mind with the body and the body with the mind. And I think the insula actually holds a lot of our trauma that that appears to be Mm -hmm. in our body, but is Mm -hmm. actually in our mind. Mm -hmm. And if we can modify that feeling state, we can start changing the root cause of anxiety. So that's why I think psychotherapy, unless you're drilling deeply into the body, mm-hmm. isn't really that effective in the long yeah. term. Is EMDR a somatic technique? That For some gets people. In? Some okay. people, yeah. You know, but again, it's really about, you know, it, if we're doing drill into it, it's really about finding that younger version of you, mm-hmm. right? Finding that child in you, seeing their eyes, connecting with them, showing that they're seen, heard, loved, and protected. That's really what's, what healing is all about. So EMDR is helpful. Um, typically, the, the research shows that it's more helpful for specific events, like a car accident or an assault, mm-hmm. than it is like if you had a, an alcoholic father who was mm-hmm. abusive to you, you know, ever since you were a child. EMDR doesn't really tend to help with that long term. It may help with the symptoms and it may temporarily distract you cognitively, which is one of the reasons I think EMDR appears to help. But in the long term, the only therapies that really heal you are the ones that allow you to connect with that younger version of you. Now, some yeah. people have such severe traumas, emotional, physical, sexual, that yeah. you know you can't do this on your own. You need a therapist. You need someone that can right. kind of see you through it. Mm-hmm. So that's the juggling act is like how how sensitive were you and how much trauma did you have? So mm-hmm. you can be very, very sensitive and have relatively little trauma and still suffer a great deal from it. You can be not that sensitive and and experience you know the death of a parent, mm-hmm. and as long as you get love and support, be fine with it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's there's a real it's it's a real balancing act finding yeah. out the combination of how sensitive someone is and how much trauma they had. That's a that's a good point. I think so many people that um, have not been that educated in psychology or emotional, they are just like they're they're treating everybody's equal. And also, yeah. I think the realization that as young kids. Things are a lot more like like I'll go back and I watch a, a kid's movie, and then when I was a kid, I was like it was scary music that was very scary to me. But but now I'm like oh that's nothing. But I was sure. a kid back then, so basically things are a lot more dramatic. And again, that psychological development and 
we didn't have that. Um, we haven't developed in our brain to understand that everything wasn't because of us. It wasn't our fault. <laughs> right. Yeah. And we feel more as kids. We're more in the moment as kids, you know? And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, if you tell a kid it's going to be a week, it just feels like freaking forever. Right, right. Whereas if you say to you, it's like, well, it's going to be a week. It's like, I know a week's going to pass, pass actually fairly mm-hmm. quickly. Mm-hmm. I think kids are more in their bodies. They feel more. Right. right. So they don't have that cognitive bypass where they can go into their brain so much and start, mm-hmm. you know, sort of metabolizing some of this pain um, through their thoughts. I think they learn that, you know, I think that's where worry starts is that the kids go into their, their mind when they're in a trauma that they can't escape. You mm-hmm. know, if you have a mother who's, you know, constantly on you about your weight or whatever, like that's a trauma that they can't escape because they're kids. So they go into their heads, they go into the, the worry part of their heads, and they, they leave their body. And I think that's one of the reasons, too, I think why people feel like as we get older, time goes by much faster is because mm. we're spending it mostly in our heads. We're not really actually spending mm. it in our bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you can even go more dramatic babies. I read this. So it was really interesting that, you know, babies are why they cry so, so much. And so they, they don't understand, oh, I'm hungry. Oh, of a poopy dab, whatever, pain, hunger, those things seem infinite to them because they don't understand that they might, they'll get relief in this certain amount of time. So it's just end of the world. And that's why it's so important to have an attuned mother that can see you because if you have a poopy diaper or you are hungry and you're left for too long and that's not resolved, children, infants, babies start developing this thing that the world is in a safe place. Mm Mm-hmm. When you get an attuned mother and you feel pain and you get soothed, your brain, your unconscious brain, the deeper subcortical parts of your brain start feeling like, oh, okay, the world is a safe place. You know, I, I am okay. And many of us who didn't get that feel that the world is is not safe forever. Mm-hmm. And we live in this sort of survival mode. We can have periods where we feel comfortable and calm, but in general, it's it's mostly it's mostly fear with with islands of safety rather than mostly safety with islands of fear. Mm-hmm. Right. So one thing I think about, you think that as our society's you know becoming more um, uh, psychologically aware and trained, although of course there's the opposite, making things you know like TikTok pop psychology, and you get misconstruing things, but but there there's a danger in like um oh man all these things create trauma for for kids so i'm just not gonna i'm i'm getting anxiety about having kids and and being there for them the way i need to how how do you address that (laughs) well it kind of depends on how emotionally balanced you are as a parent right like some people have kids because they think that's the only thing that's going to truly love them Mm. which is a kind of a very precarious place right. to go mm-hmm. and you so know, to, to see and, some like yeah. women have like 13 14 kids and you're like i mean yeah, it's, it's possible but the, yeah it's hard to tell what the what the you know <laughs> the motivation behind having those many kids is it's it's probably external more than internal but mm-hmm. it can be you know but we live in this sort of dopamine driven society where we are in our heads we are getting sort of you know, TikTok and Instagram, and, you know, you can visit 14 beautiful places inside of 30 seconds on Instagram, Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. know, so normal human experience can't even compete with that. Mm -hmm. So we have this, we're developing this sort of totally dopamine driven in, in, you know, immediate gratification society, 
which kind of X's us out of the maybe the serotonin driven sunset where you're just happy mm-hmm. to be alive and happy right. to be there and witnessing that, you know, there's mm-hmm. less and less of that sort of contentment part of being hum- human. And there mm-hmm. is this sort of, Oh, what am I going to do tomorrow? What am I going to do now? What's mm-hmm. happening? You know, I'm going to go and zombie scroll Instagram for a while. You know, it's, it's a very, we're, we're being seduced into the deeper part of our nature in that we like novelty we like mm-hmm. new things mm-hmm. but we're burning out our dopamine circuits because we're always getting new stuff so the bar keeps getting raised higher and higher and higher mm. the downside of that is if you look below we're getting less and less able to enjoy this the, the quieter moments mm-hmm. you know so and you know that's kind of where a lot of our creativity comes from is being mm-hmm. being quiet being still be, be even being bored Right. Is, is, you know, boredom is the mother of creativity. You've right. got to do something. As a child, mm-hmm. if you're bored, you've got to do something. Um, but the kids nowadays, I sound like an old man, these kids nowadays, <laughs> you know, it's like, but the kids nowadays, there's no boredom because mm-hmm. all you have to do if you feel bored is just go on your smartphone and just mm-hmm. start, you know, Snapchatting your friends or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no, there's no creativity anymore. There's no, mm-hmm. we, you know, there's no boredom anymore is what I should say. Right. And as boredom leads to creativity and boredom also leads to how do I deal with negative emotion? Mm. Can I sit with the discomfort of boredom? You know, can I deal with it? But if you never actually have to deal with discomfort, because every time you feel jealous, envy, pain, you just zombie scroll Instagram, you're never really learning how to teach yourself that, you know, negative emotion passes. Mm-hmm. It's we can deal with it. So we have a lot of kids now who are have a hard time with dealing with any kind of negative emotion at all. Mm-hmm. So they're going on stage and going, you know, I'm a, and I'm not judging this. I'm just, it's an observation. Right. You know, I'm a highly sensitive person. So there's people that are smoking in the back of the room and that's disrespectful to me. And it's like, we're not teaching our, our kids how to be resilient. Mm-hmm. We're teaching them how to complain actually. Mm. Now, I know that sounds harsh, and I'm not blaming the kids in a way because right. they grew up in this society where mm-hmm. they didn't feel pain. They didn't have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, now life is inherently painful. <laughs> it it right. really is. And if you can't handle pain, life is going to be very, very uncomfortable for you. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's all good stuff. Do you also think, um, you know, with social media and, and the news and all that, the, the world we're aware of so much more of the world and the problems in the world. And also sure. of course, news is all about the negative that it puts us more in this fight or flight response and overwhelm of what's all going on. And it's just like too much to process. Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. Yeah. Um, so you want to talk a little bit about your program and how, how you deal with anxiety? How do you treat that? Yeah, I wrote a book called Anxiety Rx, and I self-published it. And most self self-published books sell less than two hundred copies. And as of today, it's just under sixty thousand copies. Wow, that have been sold that's, that's Anxiety Rx. So, so yeah. This, so this book right here is doing extremely well. I also have a program called uh, Your Mind Body Prescription for Permanent Anxiety Healing, and that's just an online program and. I have a bit of an issue with the the expense of trauma healing. So, you know, people charging thousands of dollars for programs. 
I made mine a hundred dollars. Or if you want to pay it in two installments of fifty once a month, that's fine with me. I just I wanted to get the information out there that there is a different way of looking at anxiety. There's a different way of healing anxiety, and the traditional models simply aren't working long term. So I created a program that has some meditation in it. Uh, it has something called the Yoga Nidra, which basically mm-hmm. puts you into this relaxed state, um, connects your mind and your body, and also connects your adult self with your child self, which is what I believe you know creates anxiety in the first place. Separation of mind from body, separation of adult within you with the child in you. So it helps you understand that anxiety actually is more to do with old energy stored in your body mm-hmm. than it is the thoughts of your mind. Mm-hmm. And once people understand that, you know, I get messages every single day from people that say, this is the first time someone's explained my anxiety to me in something that makes sense to me, you know, and not just said, hey, you know, all you have to do is think better. Just think better and your anxiety <laughs> will be gone. Right. And for 0.4 seconds, that actually works neurologically. If you think better, you create a little dopamine and, and it does help you. But in the long term, it doesn't. And it's very difficult to think in opposition to how your body feels. If your body feels alarmed, your thoughts are going to be alarming. It's just the way we are wired as human beings. So it's understanding that you don't necessarily have to add a whole bunch of thoughts to this alarm feeling in your body. And can you go back and find that alarm, find that child and see them, hear them, love them, protect them, show them they're okay. And that's how you heal anxiety at its root. So I made both of these things. The book is like 20 bucks. I think the the program is 100 because it's really important to get the right information out there. And once you know what to do, all it is is practice after that. You just practice it over and over again. And then you start rewiring those old circuits that are in the subcortical region of your brain that are lower down, that are running your life. You can start rewiring them so that you can actually look at things and you can handle negative emotion. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, your brain doesn't have to freak out every time you feel anxious. You can kind of mm-hmm. go, okay. Where is this in my body? Can I, can I center into it? Can I allow myself to feel it? And then when you allow yourself to feel it, you've got to feel it to heal it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. If you allow yourself to feel it and say, you know, this hurts, but it's not nearly the monster it was when I was seven years old, mm-hmm. then you can start metabolizing it. Then you can start to truly heal the root cause rather than just try to fix the thoughts, which, like I said, most therapies try and do. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with fixing thoughts, but unless you have a grounding in your body first, there's nothing for those. There's nothing for those new um, learnings to stick to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that that's great. Um, so again, just what you said. Um, uh, so I, I know that that, that re- thinking about things differently that's not the 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 root, and that's 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 comes after, but. In the after, I, I've heard that like the feeling of anxiety is the same feeling as excitement. And so if you could kind of train your brain sure. to be like, oh, I'm feeling excited. It, is that helpful? I think for some people it helps to understand that, you know, um, when we are anxious people, and I use that term kind of sparingly, that anything that revs up our nervous system can be it will get channeled into anxiety Mm -hmm. so say you're looking forward to dinner with your friend that you haven't seen for a long time or whatever some of that excitement will get channeled into anxiety and fear and worry because that's been the the super highway that you've created in your mind so it's going to water is going to flow down the path of least resistance and 
emotional charge also flows down the path of least resistance. So if you've been used to worrying for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, even things that are exciting will get channeled into that sort of anxious pathway. Like, oh my God, what if this happens? You know, Mm -hmm. what ifs, worries, worst case scenarios, all that kind of stuff. And I don't actually agree with the whole excitement and anxiety are felt exactly the same way in the brain. Mm-hmm. The brain doesn't really know the difference. The brain does know the difference. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a part of you that knows the difference between excitement and anxiety. <laughs> mm-hmm. But practically, a lot of those circuits overlap considerably. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of fool yourself into thinking, okay, well, this is just excitement, which mm-hmm. does help. It's, it's a cognitive reframe mm-hmm. that does help. But again, it's really when you're feeling excitement about, you know, that dinner that you were having with someone you haven't seen for a long time, mm-hmm. just find the, find the alarm in your body, put your hand over it, breathe into it, connect to it, and just kind of say, look, I've got you. I know, you know, you're, you're basically talking to that younger version of you, you know, and sometimes as a neuroscientist and a medical doctor, I, I want to have a seizure when I start talking about the younger self or the inner child or whatever you want to call it. But so much of what I found in medicine hasn't been... It's been helpful, but it's not going to heal you. Mm-hmm. And so much of what healing is, is more of a spiritual connection with yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's what heals you. That's what provides the long-term healing. Mm-hmm. So it's really understanding that science can help us, absolutely, but it's going to help us cope. Mm-hmm. You know, It's really connecting to your own spirit that actually helps you heal. And in a way, sometimes doing breathing exercises and mindfulness and all that kind of stuff is kind of a crutch. You know, it's kind of a way of making you feel better in the short term. Mm. But really, if you're going to feel your, if you're going to really heal this in the long term, you have to connect with all parts of you and right. you have to connect your mind and your body and your adult self with your child self. That's how you heal from anxiety right. instead of just learning how to cope with it. Yeah. I think you're talking about like bypassing. So it's like, oh, I, I love meditation. I think that's helpful with anxiety, all that. But yep. at a, to a certain point, because a certain point it can just become escaping that and, and trying to feel better rather than like, I need to address my inner self and in these wounds and what are they saying to me and what is my inner child trying to tell me? And and meditation can almost become a way of, Oh, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm just going to. But in a way that's, that's the, the, the flip side of that is that meditation does teach you, okay, I don't have to give these thoughts credibility. Right, right, Right. Right. So, and I think that's a lot of, especially early in your healing from anxiety, a lot of it is the fact that you've given these thoughts, these worries, a lot of credibility. Mm-hmm. And it's like the, like the child, the, the, you, you might be pregnant, you know, Jennifer gives that a tremendous amount of credibility. Oh my God, I might be pregnant where Jake doesn't give it any credibility at all. doesn't mm-hmm. affect his body at all. So it's one of those things that it's the same thought in a human being, but two very different outcomes. So you can in meditation, you kind of learn, Oh, here's a thought. I can just, I don't have to chew on it. I call mm-hmm. it like chewing on glass is like, is basically allowing your worries to take you over. It's like, you're just <laughs> chewing good. on glass. That's yeah. all you're doing. And you're like, why does this hurt so much? <laughs> I wish this didn't hurt so much, man, this is hurting. And you keep chewing on the glass. So it's like meditation is one of those things. It's like, oh, this is a worry. I can just let it sit there mm-hmm. and it'll just fade. And in in that practice, that practice is actually really helpful. But it's more of a it's more of a pro move. It's more of a pro tip because when you start meditating, actually your anxiety can get worse because you're right. giving yourself this silent place <laughs> to worry, right? Which is basically yeah. what people do, and they uh-huh. don't stick with meditation because meditation becomes painful because when mm-hmm. they stop, 
they just worry more because right. it's been such a way of, it's been shut of, down and now it's coming to the surface but yeah they haven't gotten to the point of learning how to handle that and deal with that yeah because worry i think as a child is a way of distracting yourself it's a way of dissociating from the pain in your body so it actually does serve a purpose that way but the problem is that you know we're not eight years old anymore, mm-hmm. you know, we're 35, 45, 55, 65 years old. And that program of worry helps me doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's making you worse. As a child, it probably did help you to associate a little bit from the pain because you were powerless and helpless. But as an adult, it just makes everything worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think there's a point too, when you start dealing with your anxiety, where anxiety was, was, the driving force to get things done. Yes. And then you may deal with that and then it's gone, but then you don't haven't replaced that with better motivation. And then you're like, well, how, how am I going to get anything done? It's a great point. Especially those of us with ADD, Mm -hmm. you know, I think we use our anxiety as a way of getting shit done. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you think, well, if I don't have my anxiety, I'm just going to fall to the ground and nothing's going to get done. Right. And it actually doesn't work that way. Without anxiety, you actually become much more productive and much more creative, by the mm-hmm. way. Because, you know, one thing anxiety does is it definitely will shut down your credibility. And it's a bit of a teeter-totter, too, because the most creative people I know are also the most anxious. Mm. So, yeah. so yeah. it's, you know, it's one of those things that I think that it revs up your brain in a way that you start thinking in a different way that most people do. And I think this is this is the basis of stand-up comedy is like you're you're basically showing as a stand-up comedian a different way of looking at something that you've looked at the same way for your mm-hmm. whole life. And Seinfeld mm-hmm. is, you know, we were talking about that earlier. It's it's the whole thing about um looking at things very differently and I think that's what comedians do is they present it in a different way. And you were talking about, you know, the number one fear of human beings is speaking in front of an audience. Right. And Seinfeld talks about that. He says, you know, the number one fear of people is speaking in front of an audience. Number two is death. Number two. So that means if you're at a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. <laughs> you know, so so that's a classic example of mm-hmm. of making something that is obvious when you think about it, you know, it brings it into your your consciousness and the result when when your brain kind of jogs it together and says oh that does make sense something that doesn't make sense makes sense in comedy or something that doesn't make sense you you make it make sense mm-hmm. you know that's i think that's what the comedy's really all about and it's it's that that's how we do it and i think anxious, anxious people are among the most creative mm-hmm. um when their when their brain kind of burns out a little bit and they kind of the anxiety drops a little bit and they can mm-hmm. come into their real selves but you're right i think anxiety acts as a motivator in a lot of ways and we're afraid to lose it mm-hmm. yeah yeah so i mean it's good to have a little bit of anxiety and keeps you keeps you alive and keeps you keeps you going but um too much is then, then you shut down and yes. then you can't do anything. And I've, I've been there. Um, so, so I guess what, what do you replace the anxiety to motivation to get things done? I think you just, you know, you, you become connected to your younger self and your younger self 
holds your hopes and dreams. Mm. It holds the part of you that, you know, when you're five years old, and you want to be a fireman, you know, there's a part of you that really wants to be a fireman. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just really finding that younger version of you, because that's where all your best traits are. As much as you judge, abandon, blame, and shame that child in you with the inner critic, that child still holds the best parts of you. Mm. And it's finding that child because they still have the same motivations mm -hmm. that you do now. And they also have motivations that really actually fulfill your life yeah. rather than, you know, hamper it. You know, I mm -hmm. see a lot of people who are very focused on making money and they make a ton of money and they're still not happy because right. that child doesn't feel like they're connected. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can have all the money in the world. And if you don't feel connected to your younger self, you're not going to access your creativity. You're not going to have this sense of, self-confidence you're going to have a huge amount of imposter syndrome and it's going to be very difficult even if you do become successful to really feel it and enjoy it right yeah yeah so i think sometimes when we uh then connect with our younger self and our creativity and our, our true desires and motivations that might require a change in our life and and what we're doing or or how we do it at the very least um and that can be scary to people but like you of said course that's what's actually going to be fulfilling to us in the long run. Um, instead of just trying to keep going uh, with this, with this emptiness that is, isn't actually fulfilling. So, yeah. And then we keep chasing it. Like I always tell people, it's like, be careful A little bit more what you're good at. and I'll be good. <laughs> yeah. Well, be careful what you're good at because you know, if you're intelligent, which a lot of anxious people are, they will lean on their intelligence. They will try and think, feel that they can think their way out of it. And basically, if worry and anxiety is a problem of excessive thinking, more thinking mm. is not really going to help mm -hmm. you, right. right? But your brain doesn't tell you that. Your brain says, we have the answer, we have the answer, we mm -hmm. have the answer, and it just has more of the problem. Mm -hmm. So it's just really understanding, like, what do I need? What's important to me? What was important to me as a child? How can I give that child and me the connection, the love and support now that he or she didn't get back then? Yeah. And I think too, it's a, it's a, it's a mechanism of, of trying to control, like the, it's all about the future. It's how can I think about things? So always be prepared, always be ready, always be in control. But I, I think that, you know, when we can surrender, um, to the unknown and, and I think, you know, you talked about the spiritual, like I'm being guided, I have help. Um, and I think God has, God has a plan for me and, um, that that's true freedom and true uh healing yeah i mean if you you know the thing about trauma for children is they lose faith in the world and one of the byproducts of losing faith in the world is you start thinking well everything is up to me and if you start thinking everything is up to me and you're seven years old that's going to be a very difficult life for you so there is this feeling like okay well i have to be worried i have to be worried and hypervigilant about the future in order to keep myself safe, which becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because kids will start thinking, well, if I worry about this, I have some control over it. And of course, that's not true. But in the child mind, it is true. So we learn to become hypervigilant and worried as children as a way of, like I said earlier, distracting from the pain in our body. And it works. Mm -hmm. You know, it works. So we just keep doing it. But it works as a child. But as an adult, it just makes you worse and worse and worse. So... Mm. That's one of the issues of why anxiety tends to get worse as people get older. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I also think it connects to um, self-image and we, we kind of talked about it in a roundabout way, but 
that I think when we start talking to our inner child and listening and, and feeding that, that is a, a form of self-love. And uh, then that builds uh, self-confidence and self-worth. And so instead of being anxious about what a, everyone else is thinking and how they're thinking about us and all that stuff, that, 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 that helps that anxiety. And so uh, we can be more secure in ourselves and uh, as confident. I think, so I think that addresses like social anxiety a lot. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, social anxiety, a lot of that is that we have this social engagement system in our, in our minds and our bodies, eye contact, tone of voice, prosody of voice, body language, facial expression, how we interact with other people. Now, unfortunately, when we get anxious and we go into survival mode, that social engagement system gets shut off because we prioritize survival over connection. So if you don't have that ability to, to detect facial expressions or body language or you, you can't make eye contact, it's going to be very difficult for you to be socially engaged. So that's one of the reasons why people have social anxiety is because their anxiety comes up. It shuts off their ability to connect to the social mm. engagement system. So, of course, you're not going to want to, you know, you're not going to go, want to go and play in a softball game with your friends if you're horrible at softball. Mm -hmm. Like it's just, you're just not going to want to do it. So if you don't have the software in your brain to connect with other people, of course, you're going to avoid parties and crowds and, and, and talking with people. It's just how it is. So it's basically regulating your body. And when you regulate your body, your social engagement system comes back online and you're able to read facial expressions. You're able to sort of connect with other people. Mm. So it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. The mm. more afraid you are of social connection, the more it actually shuts off your ability to be socially connected. Yeah. Another unfortunate part of our human wiring. But you know that's part of the game. And it's just realizing, okay, if I can regulate my body I'll be much more able to go into that party and, you know, maybe not feel great initially, but, you know, see maybe one of my friends and we have a chat. And then once you've been in there for five or 10 minutes and you're connected, you feel okay. Mm -hmm. So it's, mm -hmm. it's really, you know, it's, it's, these things aren't hard to explain from a neuroscience perspective, but they really do come down to this, you know, internal connection with yourself as a way of healing all this stuff. Mm. So would you say that introverts are a lot more, uh, likely to be anxious than extroverts? Uh, probably, you know, I have a little problem with labels because I think people are always a combination of right, both. Right. Right. So it depends. Like there's, there's part of me that loves being seen, that loves being on stage mm -hmm. and loves doing stand up comedy. And there's a part of me that hates it. Mm -hmm. It just hates the attention. I don't want to be seen. I just want to hide in a corner, <laughs> whatever. So, you know, and those two drives are of course opposite. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, I used to have tremendous anxiety before stand up and I don't so much anymore, although I don't do a lot of stand up anymore. But it's, you know, anxiety comes when you have two different motivations that are diametrically opposed to each mm. other. So, you know, we want to be socially connected, but we're afraid of it. So it creates a lot of conflict <laughs> within us. Right, right. Yeah, I, I feel like sometimes extroverts they might be so extroverted to mask their anxiety oh, or their introversion. Yeah. You know, that's where, that's where that, that's why I don't like the labels too right. much introvert, extrovert, because a lot of extroverts are basically doing that because they're introverted, because they found that if I'm the life of the party and that kind of stuff, I don't feel so anxious. I don't feel mm. so alarmed. Mm -hmm. So it becomes like a learned version of extroversion. Mm. It's not really your own, your own natural state. Mm. So that's why it's really hard to label people introverts right. or extroverts. Yeah. Cause I can definitely, 
sorry. I definitely no, feel like there are some people that are extroverted that, you know, I can feel I, I they, they don't seem genuine. And then there's other people who yeah. are just a uh, people person. I'm like, oh, yeah, they're genuine. Yeah. So absolutely. Totally. Totally agree with you, Kendall. Yeah. So I guess, you know, it's it's been a great conversation. I think maybe we should uh, kind of wrap it up a little bit with a few yeah. things and then we can kind of move on from there. i got to go visit my daughter here in a few minutes. And, oh, yeah, uh, sure. I, w- I was going to ask you, you know, we covered a lot and uh, if there's... We any- really did. I don't <laughs> yeah. overwhelm people. Right, right. That's kind of uh, <laughs> what I do in my podcast. I cover a lot of ground and then... Um, you have? So- We've covered a lot already. Yeah, I really, you know, I really appreciate more so it. More so than I do in most. Yeah. Oh, awesome. So, yeah. So I think that your your questions have really sort of sparked uh, sort of a, a kind of a flow with me. So I know I've been talking a lot, but I get excited when I, I get the right prompts for sure. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And I mean, I I love what you had to say. You had great stuff to say. So I'm I'm just grateful to listen. So is there any last uh, last things that you would like to impart? I guess it's just, you know, get the book. It really is. If you struggle with anxiety, get the book. It's called Anxiety Rx. It's sold like 60,000 copies. It's an audio book as well. So I narrate that. And if you're really struggling, consider getting the program. You know, it's relatively inexpensive. It will give you a different view of anxiety than you've ever seen before. And I just want to get as much of my work out as possible because I think the current theory of anxiety in traditional psychiatry and psychology isn't accurate. Mm. And we're not doing people a lot of favors. I understand that, you know, you kind of left academia, maybe at a conscious level, knowing that this really wasn't helping people. Right. And that's why I left medicine in a lot of ways is I, I really felt that just giving prescriptions, and again, I love medical doctors, I think they're they're invaluable, but just giving prescriptions to hide symptoms really dangles people over the gates of hell because they never really feel the need to go, go deeper, you know? Mm. So, so you live kind of this superficial life in anxiety and fear and you don't have to, you know, you, if the more you understand and the more you practice connecting your mind and your body and your adult self with your child self, the more your anxiety just fades. Now I'm not anxiety free by any Mm -hmm. means at all, Mm -hmm. but I'm a million times better than I used to be. Mm -hmm. And I also know now that I don't have to give my thoughts credibility. I think that's one of the biggest healing aspects of of anxiety is you go yeah that's a thought but it's not real Mm -hmm. you know so it's really important to understand that there is a different view of anxiety there's a different way of of getting past it than the traditional models yeah yeah i totally agree i've i've i feel the same way i'm not anxiety free but i've come a long way and i i just notice now that when i get into patterns of anxious thought loops that i can recognize that and snap out of that a lot faster and I know the ways to do that than when I was younger. So it, it's, yeah. a, it's a great journey. Well, what you're doing is you're breaking the alarm anxiety loop, right? So the, the, what's happening in your body is there's a sense of alarm and your mind is a compulsive meaning-making, make-sense machine. So it makes sense of this alarm in your body by giving you things that are consistent with the alarm, which is you know horrible thoughts, worries, warnings, what-ifs, worst-case scenarios. And if you learn, like, okay, I don't actually have to pay attention to this, uh, you can break the cycle because the, the alarm energi- energizes the worries and the worries energize the alarm. So if you can break that cycle by just not allowing the worries to get credibility in your mind, you can actually just deal with the alarm. And once you deal with the alarm, you can metabolize that and heal the root cause of the problem Mm -hmm. as opposed to just trying to fix your thoughts, which never works. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's great stuff. Well, 
I appreciate you coming on the podcast and Thanks, sharing Kendall. us with your journey and all your wisdom. Uh, it's been great. Thanks, Kendall. I appreciate it. Anytime. 